0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 611 with Michael Solomon. Michael is sharing how you can get ahead and stay ahead by becoming what he calls a 10x talent, as in you're delivering an X plus value. And people love you, want to keep you and promote you, etc. So you'll learn one, the one thing that leads to exponential career growth. Two, an overlooked skill that sets any professional apart. And three, the most dangerous thing you could do to your career. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by com slash EP611. And while at AwesomeAtYourJob.com, I recommend you check out some handy resources such as our gold nugget email list, which provides you with summary insight wisdom from Michael and all the guests who've gone before him. And an email summary you can read in about three minutes, goes right to your inbox, and you unlock the vault of all of these summary gold nuggets over at AwesomeAtYourJob.com. Now, here's Michael's story. Michael Solomon is the co-founder of 10X Management, the world's first tech talent agency, 10X matches top contract technology experts, designers, and brand innovators with companies ranging from startups to Fortune 500 companies like American Express, HSBC, Google, Verizon, Yelp, and more. He's appeared on CNBC, BBC, Bloomberg TV, and spoken at South by Southwest. He founded Brick Wall Management, a talent agency representing multi-platinum and Grammy award-winning recording artists, songwriters, top record producers, and filmmakers. Michael also co founded Musicians on Call, a nonprofit that brings live music to over 700,000 people in healthcare facilities across the U.S. and remains an active member of its board of directors. Big thanks to Michael for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Now, here's Michael. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
1: Pete, it's a pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here and excited to chat with you today.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to be chatting too. And uh, I'd love it if you could start with maybe a fun story. You've worked with a lot of famous musicians in your day. Do you have a fun story that you can possibly share with us from that career?
1: Oh, goodness. I'm trying to think if it's going to be a fun one, an embarrassing one, or inspiring one. I think I'm going to go with inspiring because it, it'll actually lead more into the other topics we're going to talk about. So I had the distinct pleasure of starting my music industry career going on tour with Bruce Springsteen in the mid-90s. First of Good all, start. <laughs> well, yeah, what, what an incredible experience. No one told me it's all downhill from here, but the good news is they didn't tell me that, so I tried to emulate it, which is going to come back in, into the story. But I got to see that man up close and personal, and I got to see him stand on stage in front of audiences of tens of thousands of people in stadiums and pour his heart out, both through the music and through the words he spoke. But then I also got to see in rooms of you know six to eight people when he got to thank people on his team and in his band for their work and their contributions to his life and how eloquently and beautifully he was able to do that, showing an emotional intelligence that you might not, I mean, you could tell it's there from his lyrics, but you might not know it from reading your average article about him. And it was astounding. I mean, the closest I can get to sort of describing it is like, it's like watching Barack Obama string together a speech who just always has the exact right thing to say. And that was pretty amazing to get to see that when I was in my early 20s.
0: Well, I'd love it. Are there any particular, this isn't our main focus, but any sort of takeaways you gleaned associated with how to support, edify, appreciate uh, folks you collaborate with?
1: I definitely think that giving positive feedback and communicating gratitude are super important experiences for at work and in life. And some of it's about communicating those things, and some of it's about Feeling The gratitude and being able to show the gratitude and just by way of example, I think that there have been moments in our company when I've returned from a vacation and I was able to thank people on our team for covering things that I wasn't able to do when I was out of the office. And in those moments, they could really feel much more than other moments the gratitude, because it was really something that allowed me to live my life in a different way. And sure, they're helpful all the time. And I don't want to take anything away from the normal part of gratitude, I feel for the people who work with us and for us. But that was a particular moment where I I could really feel it. Like I I was not just expressing an idea because I have to check the box and gratitude is good, but I, mm-hmm. I was really able to share that. Well, oh, beautiful. Thank you.
0: Well, I want to dig into a concept. You talk a lot about being a 10X talent. That sounds like something I want to be. Can you define that for us? And uh, I want to hear, is it, is it really 10X? Is that an exaggeration? Where does it come from?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I think that there are people who are really 10Xers and and in, in its purest sense, the term originally came out of technology where it was used for coders. And the idea was these are people who, write 10 times the code or 10 times better code than their peers. So this is literally sort of superhero level capabilities. And we expanded it to include people who are just so good at what they do and being good at what you do isn't enough you have to be good at what you do and be be a good communicator and be a good learner and the only way you can really be exceptional at what you do is if you're open to some of those things and and the emotional part goes with the skills part and that's really if i broke down some of what we get to in this new book it's it's really about understanding the the marriage of those two things and that they can't really be divorced very effectively
0: well so then boy so much to dig into there So 10X, it sounds like it is not an exaggeration. In the tech field, it's it's, no legitimately we could measure the lines of code or the economic value of those innovations. And you see it in other industries too.
1: Yeah. I'll give you a story if you want. Yeah, let's do it. Our favorite example as a company. So we were approached by a company that had been around for 20 years. They had built on their product over those years. That was a successful company, not huge, but very successful in the field. Everyone in the field that they're in knows them and uses them they had grown to a team of 33 development people, 33 tech team on on their tech team. And the founder came in and ultimately felt like the culture was wrong for the tech team. The tech team was in a different city than the rest of the group. It was time to rebuild the product from the ground up. And he asked whether we had people who could do that. And I showed him some of the people who I thought would be great at leading that endeavor. And he said, okay, you know, just, sit tight for two weeks. And he came back and he's like, all right, I let 30 of the 33 people go. Mm. I took very good care of them. They'll have no problem with new jobs and being displaced and let's go. And we basically started with a team of three people that has since grown to about six that is replacing the work of that 33 person team and rebuilt the product from the ground up. Um, So that is literal 10x-ness. And including including, uh, the guys who worked on it were particularly excited because by the time they finished building it out, it ran at the same speed in terms of processing transactions as Amazon does. So they were super stoked about being able to create 10x value for this company.
0: Well, yeah, that, that's an exciting experience for, to be sure. Wow. Uh, okay. So there you have it. Someone really walked that talk <laughs> with gusto on yes. uh, the TEDx talent, quite literally. Well, and so then tell me, if we zoom into the world of you know professionals, you know, full-time, salaried yeah. employees doing their thing, what sorts of, of benefits? If you got How to Be Awesome at Your Job listeners who uh, are thinking, ooh, I'd like to be like that. Is it worth the effort? <laughs>
1: how would you answer that? (laughs) Yeah. I feel like there's a bunch of things I can dive into right here that are, that are hopefully right on the money for, for the listeners. So the, the book that we're releasing is, is really two parts. The first half of the book is, is how to be a 10X manager and 10X your company and your organization. And the second half of the book is geared around individuals and how do you yourself become more 10X There's a lot of commonality in both in both the first half and the latter half of the book. But given that you're asking more about the individual contributors who are working at companies and are not necessarily managing a huge team, I think the very important thing that people need to understand about 10 Xers is it's not just their capabilities that makes them 10 X. It's their willingness to learn, their desire to learn, their desire to problem solve. And this is a word we're going to use a lot today. Their desire for feedback They are people who are willing and open and interested, and most importantly, curious about what feedback they can get that helps them improve their performance. What we talk about this with very specifically is what we call supervision, which is two words. One is inner vision, which are the things about yourself that you can't see for yourself. We all have blind spots. And the other is future vision, which is being able to see around the corner what's coming. And do you have somebody that you're working with in your life that can help you understand what are your weaknesses? And can they also help you understand what's coming down the line and what do you need to be prepared for so you're better equipped to surmount the next challenge that's around the corner?
0: Okay, well, well that's excellent in terms of a few themes there associated with the curiosity and the real desire for, for the feedback and, and, and see how you can learn and grow. For folks who feel a little bit spooked by, by that idea of, of getting feedback and such, you know, what do you recommend in terms of, of making the leap? Uh, there, there are those who would rather maybe play it safe and not ask the hard question to get the hard feedback. That's a choice and
1: everybody's entitled to make those choices for themselves, but it really will limit your ability to grow. The more open one is to feedback and you don't have to just because you get the feedback doesn't mean you have to take it, implement it, believe it's the gospel. But the idea that you're going to open yourself up and approach it with curiosity. So you can approach it with defensiveness. Just to sort of talk about my own example and my own relationship with this, because I'm a co-founder of our company and I sit at the top of the org chart, I don't have somebody above me to give that feedback. But we went out and sought an advisor for our company, and we only have one, and he plays that role for us. And the amount of insight that I gain from his feedback and and I approach it, you know, there's times where he says, do you realize you're doing this? And my gut, my knee-jerk reaction is, no, I'm not. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But then if I, ta- if I go after it with curiosity and, and just start out by saying, hmm, I didn't realize I was doing that, or I didn't think I was doing that, or I didn't think I was being perceived that way, I've all of a sudden created an environment where I can play with that idea and work on figuring out how, if it's there, and if it's a problem, and how I can change it. And if I don't seek that feedback, I will go through my whole, life. and I watch this, and I'm sure everybody who's listening sees people who are making terrible mistakes for their own self-interest, and part of it is nobody's telling them, or they're not willing to hear it. And mm-hmm. the idea of getting a, it can be your boss, it can be a mentor, it can be a coach, it could be a, you know a rabbi or a priest in the proverbial or literal sense. You need somebody who's got a third-party point of view who's invested in seeing you succeed and who's willing to say things that you're not gonna love hearing. And you have to be willing to create an environment where that feedback is well-received so they can keep giving it to you.
0: Right, and so when you say create an environment, we're kind of talking about your reaction, you know, in terms of, yeah, okay. you know, know, Either it's a blow off or it's a defensiveness or it, it is that curiosity in terms of, tell me more about that. Can you give me an example? You know, who's doing this really well? What would excellence look like? What are some other great follow-up questions to really get the goods flowing if, if you're starting to get a trickle of feedback? Well, I think part of it
1: is even before you get the trickle of feedback is ensuring that you will. There are some supervisors, leaders, managers, bosses who are very good at giving regular constructive feedback. And then there are many who hate that, find it confrontational and are afraid or unwilling to do it. And you need to evaluate your own situation and say, can I, can I start out by saying to my boss, and one of the things that we actually lay out in the book are examples of these notes where you say, hey, I really appreciate our relationship and I've enjoyed working here and I'm looking forward to the future, but I really want to grow and change and improve. And one of the best ways I can do that is, is learning from you and getting your perspective on things and specifically getting your perspective on what I'm doing well. And more importantly, what I'm not doing well. And just by being able to open that dialogue and say, I want this, you've now made it a little easier for the person to give it to you. Mm -hmm. And then sort of, I think to get back to the question you were asking, When you start to get the feedback, you need to get granular. You want to ask for examples. You want to ask for, depending on the kinds of things, if it's a mechanical thing, if it's, in other words, when you enter in your 723 reports, you're always missing the last period. That's a different kind of thing than when it has to do with an interpersonal skill. And when it's an interpersonal uh-huh. skill, those examples become really important. And so does understanding from your colleagues how it made them feel. I'll give you a great example of this, which is hard to talk about because it's about me and it's not something I'm proud of. But I advise a company um, that has a very um, forward-thinking ethos. Um, and the founder of the company is a woman and the other, the co-founder of the company is a man. And I have sent emails to them that said hi guys and whatever the rest of the email was. And she is somebody who knows that I'm very interested in feedback and likes it. And she sent me a note saying, I know you didn't intend anything by it, but I would prefer not to be addressed in a, with a male salutation. And you know, I took the feedback well, I thanked her for it, I, I but I was a little embarrassed. And you know what else I did? I did the same thing again a week later to the same person because mm. it was a habit. And she told yeah. me again and she did it with kindness and she did it because she knew I did wanna improve on it and I apologized again and asked her to keep telling me if I if I happen to, to fail again. And the reason I bring up that example is that has something to do with making people uncomfortable. And that's, if you right. think that your behavior in a meeting that makes people uncomfortable isn't gonna impact your career, you got another thing coming. <laughs> like <laughs>
0: Oh, that's, that's very true. I love that example because it, it's something that any one of us could do. It, it reminds me of someone who at a trade show, she said, I'm going to lady this booth. I'm like, what? It's like, yep. well, I'm certainly not going to man this booth. <laughs> I just tickled me. I think of her every time I see a trade show booth. I love that.
1: <laughs> and I didn't mean anything by the high guys thing. And she knew that I didn't mean anything by it, but it doesn't mean it didn't elicit a reaction.
0: That's great. Okay. So, so there's a one key set of themes there associated with the, the curiosity and the feedback and the desire to learn and, uh, and, and to ask, seek that out and, and to ask for it. So, so let's talk about how, how one gets to have that, that supervision, the ability to, to see around the corners and, and more, I, I suppose if you're getting regular feedback, that helps a lot. What else should we do to develop that skill?
1: I think the supervision for ourself is a skill that, as a business owner, you, you sort of have to pick up on to a degree to be a successful business owner. And I think that it often eludes other people, which is really taking a moment regularly to stop and look at what is coming or what you think is coming. You can't know and you can't prepare for every scenario, but just being disciplined to planning is going to get you so much farther ahead because you're you're so often and I you know I am this way because I don't like surprise I'm a control freak I don't really like being surprised by things so I don't know everything that's coming but if I don't try and anticipate what's going to happen I can't be a, a move ahead of it I'm always playing catch up so there are people in companies who are always putting out fires and never able to look ahead and the irony for me about learning about planning. Is even though we now have three for-profit businesses, I actually got my crash course in planning through some of the nonprofits that we founded because nonprofits are very disciplined, at least good ones, about doing strategic planning and taking the entire board, which is your, your, you know, in some ways your most valuable and certainly your highest priced assets and taking time away from everything else to do nothing but try and anticipate what is coming down the line and how does it impact us and what are we going to do to be ready for it? And it seems so basic. I mean, I, I don't need to be, you know, I, I don't need to publish a book or be a rocket science to say that planning is important, but so few people do it. And it's also being disciplined about doing it in the near and the long term.
0: Well, and you mentioned this in the context of of business owners or, or nonprofit executives. I imagine the same could be said of a professional anywhere in the hierarchy, in terms of okay, there there are some changes in, with our big customers, or with the market, or with the leadership, or the management priorities. And so, given this, I may very well need to to choose to you know put some proactive attention in in a new area.
1: Absolutely, I mean our version of this ten x management, which we founded about eight years ago was a reaction to sitting in the middle of the of the demise of the music industry, which is our background of having managed musicians and saying, wow, if we look at the tea leaves, technology is destroying this industry. Whether there'll be a light at the end of the tunnel, unknown. But for a long time, this is going to be a problem. And we were actively looking at like, what do we do to supplement our lives and our livelihood in that period of time? And it was only sitting down and being very intentional and sort of having that forethought that ultimately led us to the moment and allowed us to be open enough to, to the moment of saying, oh, wait, technologists, freelance technologists are the new rock stars. They need representation just the way the old rock stars do and hence the, you know, the launch of a new business.
0: And I think that's a, that's a bit of a paradigm shift and you know, not to be all over the place, but it's handy to think about yourself as, as any professional and how you can benefit from from those sorts of services. And I know you've you've done a lot of thinking about this. So, so can you can you lay it on the line for us? It, are, are there some parts about our, our professional lives that we we should be outsourcing, or we should be getting some help with in order to to flourish maximally?
1: I certainly think so. And as a result of some of the learns of 10X Management, where we help freelancers navigate their freelance careers. We have a clause in our contract that says, if you hire one of our 10Xers to a full-time job and you steal them away from us after being on a freelance engagement, then you pay us a buyout. Fairly standard in the freelance industry. And what happened was, as as the first few times that happened, our client would come to us and say, you know, they want to hire me, as you know. I know you're going to get paid on this transaction. Would you be willing to help me negotiate my full-time job the same way you helped me negotiate my freelance job? And we've now started a separate company called 10x Ascend, where we're helping people that aren't our 10x clients, they're anybody who wants help negotiating a full-time job offer. Because one of the things that happens as we did that a few times for our existing clients was we saw how absolutely broken hiring is, particularly in legacy companies. So we've now done this dozens of times. And what a company say to an employee, and this is this is really relevant for both the individual employee and for the company. Before they make an offer, they generally ask a question like, mm-hmm. what is your salary requirement? What is your comp requirement? We created a tool called a Lifestyle Calculator, which is, you know, I can, I can share a link with you, which allows people to weight 24 different attributes that go into a potential compensation package so that before, and this is the first thing we do when somebody comes to us to help with a compensation negotiation, before we talk to the company, before we even talk to the potential client. We've now caused them to wait and figure out what is most important to me in my life. For some people, it's just salary. Some people are really interested in equity for the company that they're going to. Some people want to work from home on Fridays, which used to be a thing. Now everybody uh-huh. works from home every day. Some people want a budget for continuing education. Some people want to know there's room for growth and in varying degrees. And companies ask you one question and then make you a job offer. Yeah. And it doesn't assume that like the 24-year-old engineer who's single and post-college who's applying for the same job as the 37-year-old who's got three kids don't want the same things in a package. And the Mm -hmm. closest I've ever seen a company do to doing this right is one company made an offer and they said, here's one offer with more equity and less cash. And here's one offer with more cash and less equity. And that was a great step in the right direction. But if companies would start or individuals would start by communicating, and this is what we do with our clients, these are the things that are most important to me in a job offer. We could create a much better alignment on the way in. And that alignment is both about making sure there's a good fit, which is going to make a a better result if you hire the person.
0: And it's also going to create much better retention and much happier environment. Lovely. Okay, cool. Well, so moving it back to, you know, becoming 10x, persisting in your 10xness if you are there. We've covered a, a few key themes and I'd love to get your view on are there some some roadblocks, some some bumps along the way when when folks are are really looking to enter that echelon, some common mistakes or sort of watch-outs you'd put on a radar. Yeah, it's tricky. The that-
1: we have this quiz up at the book site. The book site is GameChangerTheBook.com, and the quiz sort of measures how you are at this stuff. But really, the, the quiz was inspired by this concept of the, of the management continuum. And on one end, you've sort of got the 10Xer who has a very high level of what we call the success impulse. These are people, you know them, everybody here has met one who is constantly making the right moves that move them toward their goals. They're not tripping over their own feet. They're not shooting themselves in their foot. They're just not getting in their own way at all. And they're moving in the direction they want to move in. And then there's the whole middle spectrum, which is people who are who are in the center of the scale. And on the other end of the spectrum is what we call the sabotage impulse. And this is really the biggest problem. Like if you have the sabotage impulse, becoming 10X is virtually impossible. The sabotage impulse is choosing those things that get in the way between you and what you want. So these are the people who shoot themselves in the foot, reload the gun and shoot themselves in the foot again. They stick their foot in their mouth and most of all the reason that we encourage people like this not being in your organization is they're not interested in and don't accept responsibility for things. So they are constantly ducking and covering and throwing other people in the way of their problems and just by the nature of not being willing to accept your shortcomings and own them and explore them with curiosity you're literally creating an environment or you're creating a situation a bubble where you're not capable of improving because you can't acknowledge that there's anything to improve and that is that is the most dangerous thing so if you're feeling like that is you and most people who have that quality don't recognize it because if they did they they would have addressed it but if you feel like that's you There's no question that a coach or a therapist is what's in order because you're doing something every day that keeps you from getting what you want. So if you feel like you're always the victim, that's something to look at. For those of us who aren't all the way on that end of the spectrum, it is an incremental progress. You don't go overnight. The things that I can tell you that 10Xers really have in common is loving solving problems. They look for the bigger, the harder, the hairier, the gnarlier problem and want to dive into it they're not afraid of it. They just view it as an opportunity, like a puzzle, like a challenge. And that's one of my favorite things about those people. And they also approach it all with curiosity. They're data driven. They don't want to just like shut off the data pipeline when it doesn't suit them. They want to take the data and say, huh, that wasn't the outcome I was expecting, but that's the outcome that I got. Now, what do I do with that? And that's being reality-based. Whereas if you're in the, in the sabotage end of the spectrum, you're not being reality-based. The data is there. The data is saying you're doing this thing. It's getting in your way. It's getting in your way. And you're like, no, no, it's not me. Not me at all. I'm, I'm just a victim. Nothing's, you know, and that's the biggest thing of where you are in that continuum that can, that can move you forward or keep you stuck.
0: Yeah. Boy. And I think when, when you talk about that, this is triggering so many things for me. I, I, I recall, you know, I had a, I had a client, a coaching client who, who was just awesome. And he, like the stuff we were covering and said, I want my whole team to know this, let's build a training program. And then we did. And it, I still do that program with many other clients. So great initiative <laughs> that, that we uh, uh, put together together. And, and he said something like, man, I, I, I'm in this role in which uh, on the one hand, it, it just feels amazing at how I'm able to handle this level of complexity with so many policies and stakeholders and and competing demands and trade-offs. On the other hand, I'm kind of going insane. <laughs> and, and so I thought that was just a good articulation of, but this guy, this guy really is going for the biggest, hairiest problems and, and his career has, you know, really taken off as a result. And then he also has some humility to notice like, this is kind of nuts. <laughs> right. Maybe we need to simplify some things here. And one of the
1: things that I would say about 10Xers, and this is a little bit what you're getting at, is these are also people who have some respect for work-life balance and they care about values. And this is another thing that companies need to factor in is like, are you hiring somebody that shares the values and the vision and the mission of your company? And it's really interesting because millennials and Gen Zs who are not all 10Xers have very similar traits in that regard. They want to know that their work is valued. They want to know that their work is important. They want to know that the the company has values and that they're stated. And there there's all this mission driven stuff that gets pushed by the wayside. That's really important to these particular elements of the population, being 10xers, Gen Z, and millennials. And you know, the more we pretend or ignore that or say it's entitlement, as the older generation is is wanting to do, the the less we can we can advance them and their productivity. And they are a huge part of the workforce at this point.
0: And the other thing that really struck me is when you talk about that data is, you know, I really have seen it go both ways in terms of, again, my world is training. Some folks are are all about collecting the data and say, hey, did this make an impact? Was it effective? Let's really learn from that and, and fine tune and iterate and and make the case if it, hey, if this is really working, providing a great return, let's really do some more of this. And then there are those who... <laughs> Uh, they've said to me, wow, the questions you put on your evaluation would absolutely terrify me and I would never want to give that to a client. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so uh, there, there it is, right front and center in terms of you know, what's your relationship to, to that data? Do you want it to never exist because cause you're afraid of it or are, are you hungry? And uh, it is it's in some ways the riskier path, but my goodness, the, the rewards are are much greater. But is it that
1: risky because the other people already see and think these things. The only person we talk about this concept in the book, it's called Johari window, Johari's window. It's essentially the idea that there are four panes of perspective. There's, you know, let's say the top right is there's what you know about yourself and everybody else knows about you. You and I both wear glasses that would fall into that category. There's the window of what you know about yourself and nobody else knows about you. We won't say what that is, but like there's, <laughs> there's, there's your deep, dark secrets. There's the things that nobody knows about you and you don't know about yourself, which is not particularly relevant or useful, but the, it exists. And the last one is the things that other people know about you and you don't know about yourself. And that's the one that we're talking about with regard to the feedback we're, we're talking about. And the fear mindset around this is that if you don't ask about it, it won't exist. But that's mm. not the reality. Other people are seeing this. You're the only one who doesn't know. This is like burying your head in the sand kind of thing. Like it's happening. You got that spinach on your teeth. Would you rather know about it or would you rather not have someone tell you?
0: Well said, well said. Well, well so, you know, about half of our listeners, you know, do have direct reports and they have got some management responsibilities. So I'd love to get your take in terms of how do you, you shape an environment where you can uh, identify and, and cultivate more 10X talent?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the first thing for everybody to understand is the days of employees being cogs in a machine with some notable exceptions are over. Nobody wants to be thought of that way or treated that way. Certainly not 10xers and certainly not millennial and Gen Z. It's just not how it works. The days of like have that on my desk at 3:30 or else. It's just not the way we're working anymore in most places. And and now what we're starting to see is places that do operate that way. Don't last long. And it eventually blows up in their face. And you you hear all kinds of complaints about management and hostile work environment and all that stuff. So let's assume you're already not being in a hostile work environment. The flip side of that, the other direction to go with that is really being driven toward humanity. And that these are human beings that you work with, that you're close to, that you spend every day with. They have lives and their lives impact their work. And without frying, and without being inappropriate in how far you reach, the more you can treat somebody as a human being and show them empathy and care, the better. So a tiny example might be I have one agent who works for us who's on vacation or traveling in a given week and just remembering and saying, hey, I was going to assign this project to you. Is that OK? Because you're traveling. Or do you want me to give it to somebody else is a way of showing a consideration for a human thing. Like as a work person, I don't care who like do this. Like if all I cared about was getting it done, wouldn't ask the question. But if you want to have a relationship and a culture and an environment where people help each other, and one of our core values in our company is helping each other, then you have to live that. You have to really, really show that. And you have to let people know that you actually care about them as a human being. And Hopefully that's not hard for most people, but it is different than what came before, at least as far as the
0: workplace goes. All right. Well, Michael, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
1: I think that the most important thing that we're getting to in the sort of how to manage people is that it's bespoke. It used to be you're a boss, you treat your employees a certain way, and you need to recognize that each employee is a unique and different snowflake that needs to be treated in the right way that is best for them to be productive and useful. And that's more onus on us as managers. And you know what? It's a better workplace as a result of it.
0: All right. Well now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
1: My father, who's also an author and a and a nonprofit luminary, has always said when you want something done, go to the busiest person in the room which is so counterintuitive. And when he first started telling me that in my probably 20s, I thought he was nuts. And now I totally understand it. The busiest people I ever email are the ones who email me back within three seconds.
0: And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
1: The two pieces of data that I'm gonna bring up for this, and I'll try and do it quickly, is the idea that helping other people is more beneficial to your happiness and your, your sense of joy in the world than doing something for yourself. And that's a little counterintuitive, and most people don't operate that way. And if we did as a world, we'd have a much happier world with with much happier people and much better cared for people. And then the second one, which is sort of related and definitely related to feedback, is data says the appropriate amount of positive feedback to negative feedback is five to one. I find that to be hard to pull off, but even if I aim for five and end up at three positive to negative feedback, I'm okay with that.
0: And not... uh to dig too deep into that, but sometimes, I don't know if this is cheating, (laughs) I I think about it in terms of like relationships and and experiences and encounters. So maybe the hard feedback is an unpleasant experience, but there were, were multiple pleasant experiences that were not necessarily feedback related, but were still cool. Like, you know, Michael gave me something, thanked me for something, you know, made an accommodation or asked, hey, you're you're traveling, can you handle this? And so that may not be feedback, but it's a positive encounter. And so I think that can buffer some of the negative. I don't know if that's just my own spin on the research or if that's actually the research, but that's how I roll.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I agree with that. There's also the idea of sandwiching negative feedback. So you say something positive, you say something negative, and then you end with something positive again. I know I have earlier in my career been guilty of not practicing this and I had one experience where I did a performance review and I was very happy with the person I was reviewing, but I focused on a critique and she came back at the end and said, am I doing anything right? And I was like, oh my God, have I failed at conveying the big picture here?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's a handy question (laughs) in terms of feedback, getting the whole story.
1: Yeah. Cool. And how about a favorite book? Currently reading a book called The Anatomy of Peace, which is really interesting, based in psychology and parenting. The thesis is that you can treat people like people, or you can treat them like objects and you have a different perspective yeah. when you see them in the different
0: ways. No, that's huge. I think uh, Arbinger Institute has a lot of good themes on that. And so true. I think that's actually who wrote that uh, book. Well, <laughs> then I'm just behind the eight ball and I got to pick up the latest. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool?
1: I love dictation for email. So uh, the tools that I would cite for that are Siri and then a plugin that actually somebody built for me when I was complaining you couldn't dictate into Gmail other than on your phone. So he built a, a tool, a client of mine built a Chrome plugin that allows you to dictate into Gmail, which is called Dictation for Gmail.
0: And so this is AI Dictation? You're yes. speaking, it's... It's me speaking and it transcribing. All right. And that's sufficiently accurate to, uh, to accelerate you, huh?
1: Oh yes. Uh, I would say eighty or ninety percent of my composing that way. I draft articles and books and emails and it's my biggest time saving hack. Awesome. I can draft like a serious email walking down the street. Lovely. All right.
0: And how about a favorite habit?
1: I'm gonna go with push ups. I do a hundred push-ups. I've done that now consistently for eight years every day. I've missed five days in eight years, and it's not so much that the push-ups are my favorite habit; it's the religiosity or the fervor which which I've committed to it and to myself that really is what I love. And I, I got that from from an EQ training I did. And is this 100 consecutive push-ups? No, it's five sets of 20.
0: All right, oh, so but all within impressed. five minutes. So at least it's, okay, yeah, yeah, it's not much of a break. Okay, no. yeah. and a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks.
1: It's going back to the idea I I said, when we talked about experiments or studies, I I gave a speech a few years ago and I ended it, it was for a nonprofit and I ended it by saying, be selfish, help somebody else. And I really love that concept and that nugget of the more you do for somebody else, the better you're going to feel. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I'm happy to take emails directly at Michael at 10xmanagement.com. Do
0: you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be all smith or jobs?
1: I would say take the quiz at gamechangerthebook.com. I think that the act of taking it will teach you something, the results will teach you something, and you can learn a lot more about us and the ideas that we were talking about today.
0: All right. Well, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time and and good luck in all the ways that you're you're 10xing it.
1: I'm trying. I got a ways to go, but
0: I, I got time still, I hope. I really love what Michael had to say about the Jahari window and fear and feedback, and it's like, if you don't hear about it, if you don't know about it, if you don't pay attention to it, it's not real, it doesn't exist, but that is so not true. That your blind spots, the negative things you got going on, your weaknesses slash development opportunities that that you're not aware of, that others are aware of, are absolutely impacting you. And maybe you don't know it. And, and I think my favorite metaphor for this is, you know, we can have fear like, ooh, let's let's avoid that. Let's not dig up that rock. Let's not see that because it's unpleasant or uncomfortable. But the way I think about it is sometimes I'll do like a scan of, of my computer with like clean my Mac or some malware scanner. And, and maybe it finds some, some stuff. Maybe it's like just junk that could be cleared out. Or maybe it's like a virus or, or, or a spyware or, or something like it, it discovers that. And I personally am quite excited when it discovers that I'm like, oh, no, I got a virus or I have a lot of junk on my computer. I'm a loser because I'm not following good, you know, computer hygiene practices or I should really be more on top of that. How did I let this Mass accumulate on my hard drive. No, I don't take any of those things. In fact, I'm pretty pleased. Like, oh, cool! We can free up five gigabytes of storage just by cleaning that up. Great to know. It's like that discovery is an opportunity, and the only challenge, of course, is is how personally you take that. And so, I think that if you can get yourself in that mindset upfront as you discover, hey, it's like I'm going to find a virus or some unclaimed space by learning this, then that's pretty awesome. So, again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to we've referenced at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP611. If you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It is Lindsay Gordon. She's got some pro tips on finding optimal career fit if you're analytically minded. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com